thank you for having me and talking to me today. Great. Yeah, I can. It's a little bit weird because I can hear you in person, but also through these. So I'm getting like Sarah Beth in stereo. Yeah. And that's exactly what everybody wants <laughs> in stereo. My kids would love it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> We're not dealing with mono here. Nope. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of The Flowdown, a Three Rivers podcast featuring monthly conversations with our students, faculty, and staff. My name is Andrew Marvin. I teach English at Three Rivers, and my guest today is Sarah Beth Grant. Sarah Beth is a part-time English professor, full-time dog mom, taxi for her kids, a stubborn 18th centuryist, and an infrequent crafter. Hello, Sarah Beth. Hi, Andrew. How are you today? Uh, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right. Good. I'm glad we got all of that uh, <laughs> preliminary energy. Mm -hmm. So now hopefully we're a little bit more relaxed. How do you feel? I feel good. I am now categorized by you with those lovely you know, nouns of who I am. The little passive voice there because yes. those were your I know. descriptions of yourself, which I specifically solicited. I know, and they cause me much distress oh, no. because I'm staring at the screen trying to figure out how to describe myself. I don't like describing myself that often. And so I'm like, I have to say something witty and clever and, you know, be interesting. <laughs> I guess that's technically true. The good news is that because I am comfortable doing mild editing to this thing, mm -hmm. if we like, like if I just freeze for like 20 seconds to come up with what to say next, that's super easy to cut back out and nobody will know. So I think we can both try to try to relax. It's an interesting dynamic for me in episode two, because now the plane is sort of off the runway, like all the infrastructure and upfront and setup has been taken care of. And so I do feel a little bit relaxed in some ways about this episode, but I don't want to be too relaxed because this episode could still be a disaster. I think that's the way we all feel on day two of a semester yes. as well. We've gotten through the first day. We've handed out the syllabus. We've kind of gotten going. And then day two comes and you're still not sure if, you know, the, the groundwork has been laid. If you know where you're going, if your students know where you're going. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I feel like my anxiety is very much the anticipation of things mm -hmm. and what could happen or might happen. And now, and this is true of class too, but now that I'm here with you, mm -hmm. I'm like, this is great. And same thing when I get in the classroom, you know, it's like, uh, this is the best. Oh, absolutely. You just kind of relax and you just fall into your groove and you start doing what you do. Yes. Yep. Yes. 100%. I guess yep. it's all living in the moment. Mm -hmm. Speaking of class, you just came from class. I did. How was class today? Class today was really good. We are talking about database searching, which I actually find very exciting because my students have the chance to discover what they're interested in, which is the reason why I love teaching composition. Students get to read articles written by other people, but that's not enough. They have to discover ideas that maybe they hadn't thought about before and learn how to engage with them. And I find that incredibly fantastic to see that transition over the semester from the maybe the sense of overwhelming stress 
related to databases and discovering your ideas that occur now. But then by week 15 or 16, you know, there's there's a fluency there. There's an excitement in writing and in discussion that wasn't there that I find so um, fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. Discovering what you care about, I think, is a huge part of uh, the writing process, but also one of the things that I love about English classes is that you can teach anything. We can teach anything. I told my students in introducing their latest essay assignment, you can write about anything. If you can make an argument about it, you, know, you don't have to go right to the obvious stuff. So in in presenting or teaching databases, is that how you try to make it more interesting for them? Absolutely. I mean, I, I tell them all the time that their essays and their studies will be exciting if it is something that they're passionate about. And so they can write about anything that they want to, as long as it interests them. Because if it doesn't interest them, you know, obviously their writing will suffer and they just won't enjoy the experience or discover anything new. So I, I think this is new for students, though. A lot of high school experience is you do this because you're being told to do it and you have to accomplish it. So when I say the opposite, that we write because we want to write and we want to discover, I think that can be a little unnerving for students sometimes because they're not used to seeing composition in that way. Right. And there's definitely a... Because not having to write a paper is objectively easier than having to write a paper. And so you do have to write the paper, but it doesn't have to be as painful if you take ownership over your topic and find the things that you're interested in rather than just going right to the cliche topics that like, oh, there's so much information about X, which actually makes it more difficult to write an interesting paper. Absolutely. Yeah. What classes are you teaching for us this semester? This semester, I'm teaching uh, English 101 composition, um, an in-person class and an Elron class. Right. I remember this is your first Elron situation? Yes, it is. How's it turning out? Well, I was terrified at first, terrified, um, because I did not have to teach online classes during COVID. Um, so it was my first run at it um, and my first time using Blackboard Collaborate. So I was a little panicky at the beginning, a little panicky, sent out some panicky emails and phone calls. But um, here we are in week eight, and I feel much better about it. Um, it definitely requires a new pedagogy, a new way to think about teaching composition. And I find that invigorating because I'm always thinking about how I can better teach um, my subject and my students. And so having a new delivery method demands um, innovation in many ways. So I've been excited about that. Um, it's harder to express, um, I think, my individual passion for the subject on the screen. Um, when I walk into a traditional room, I'm very energetic, and I am finding it hard to deliver that in the online setting as well. Um, but here we are, end of week eight, and I'm feeling pretty good about it so far. That's good to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, for those that don't know, Elron is live remote online. So what that entails is teaching live into the computer where everybody logs into the virtual room at the same time and you're teaching in real time, but you're just not face to face. And I did it. I think a lot of us did it several times over the course of the pandemic. And it is probably the most challenging modality that I've personally had to deal with because I feel like I'm the same way. I feel like my greatest strength is my classroom presence and trying to convey that 
it's good that they get my voice and I have my camera on so they can see me, but it's still not as palpable, I guess, as when you're in the room together. I don't require my students to have their camera on um, mm-hmm. for various reasons. So it's hard for me to, um, well, I can't read their faces or their expressions and tailor my conversation or my behavior to those expressions, which I'm sure many have experienced with online teaching. You know, you can't respond the way that you would to those um signifiers to the body language that indicates if there's agreement or disagreement or understanding or confusion. So I have to interpret in other ways. Yes. I think the engagement, I mean, it's challenging enough face to face, but, you know, trying to pull it off in that environment. And I agree, I don't ask them to turn their cameras on either because they may not have control over what's going on behind them, let alone owning a webcam, that kind of thing. But trying to foster the engagement and the uh, active learning in that format is is so challenging. Have you found anything in particular, other than just being as excited as possible to see them, uh, is there anything in particular that you found has helped? Well, I've learned how to navigate the tools better mm. in Blackboard. So um, I've become very proficient in using various color schemes when I'm um, showing them a document, uh, breaking down, say, like a paragraph and use different colors for, to represent different parts of the paragraph and, um, you know, develop different activities for breakout rooms. But it is very difficult to revise the way that I see active learning when you can't be physically together. It requires a whole new set of tools. And I think it's it's a set of tools that's going to take a while to really develop and sharpen, but one that I'm really interested in doing because I think it's worthwhile. Yeah, and I think the more modalities we teach in, they also influence the other modalities. Like mm-hmm. I've been teaching online for years, even before it was uh, the thing to do. And it was a very gradual process, but a lot of what I learned from teaching online in terms of clarity and, you know, course design and structure and organization and things like that are now, you know, consistent across all my sections, whether or not they're in person or or online. You teach, right now you're doing two 1010s, but you've also done 1020 for us, which we'll talk about because I know that's your jam, as it is mine. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to get your take, though. Because you, uh, on my podcast forum, you introduced yourself as a part-time English professor. And I feel like just recently, there's been a little bit of discussion about the word adjunct as a pejorative sort of term. Do you feel that way? Do you have a take on it? Has, has it never crossed your mind? It crosses my mind all the time. Uh, yeah, I do not like the term adjunct. I do think it has all of these negative connotations attached to it. Mm. Um, I don't even like to call myself part-time either because it makes it sound like I don't commit fully to my job or to my students. And that's just not true. I only teach a part-time load and I don't have an official full-time capacity, but I'm constantly thinking about my students, thinking about my syllabi. Um, I devote many hours and much energy to thinking about my students and doing um, work even when I'm not on campus. So I think that we really need a different designation for the type of individual that I am. 
Um, but I also recognize that I am different than many part-timers. Many part-timers have a second full-time job um, or part-time job in the field that they um, uh, are involved in. I do not. So when I don't teach, I write and I research and I publish, which is an anomaly, um, I know. Um, but it doesn't help when I say, oh, well, I work part-time because I really, I don't. I yeah. do a lot on my own. I think that's a great argument to make in your favor, because having seen you teach and having worked with you in other contexts outside of this podcast, I know that you don't just, you're not just an English teacher part-time. And I think that's true for all of us, particularly in the English discipline, that it really is part of the identity and how we see the world and move through the world. It's not just a nine to five. And so, yeah, I mean, even as you were describing that, I was thinking, oh, the word part-time is, does feel inappropriate. You know, just because you're teaching two classes instead of four or five doesn't mean that you're not in English professor mode full-time. Yeah, it's awfully hard, especially, say, if I have to tell someone who's not in academia what I do for a living, and if they ask me, is it full-time or part-time? And I will say, well, it's part-time. And there's always that reaction from them of, oh, okay. It's just part-time. Right. What do you do with the rest of your day? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mentioned this with Shay last month, too, but even teaching two classes, whether you're teaching two or five or one over the summer, they will take as much time as you have for them. Absolutely. And I've always been the type of individual to give a lot to my classes because I'm always trying to rethink them and, and experiment and offer new um, assignments or texts or situations. And so I would say that my teaching is my identity and my research and my interest in English is just who I am. Yeah. And so it's diffused in many ways. And it's, it's a reason why I really don't like the idea of being an adjunct because it makes it sound as if I'm on the periphery of the profession where I feel that I'm very much in the profession in my own way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Thank you for expressing mm -hmm. that because it totally hits home for me too. I looked up the word adjunct the other day when I was preparing for our conversation and the definition was not in an academic context, but supplementary rather than essential, which mm -hmm. is antithetical to the role that our adjuncts play, our part-time instructors play. Yeah, because if you were to ask my students, am I essential or supplementary? I would hope they would see that I am essential for their education. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man, language. Yes. I don't know. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about your path leading to Three Rivers that led you, because this is, how many semesters have you been or years have you been with us? This is my second year now. Second year, okay. <laughs> so, so can you tell us a little bit about what led you to Three Rivers. Well, it's been a long journey and not a straight path, that's for sure. I always thought that I was going to be one of those individuals who had a nice, cushy, tenure-track job teaching 18th century British literature. So we're talking 100 years of British literature, and that's it. You know, that was my goal in life. Um, and that was what I was trained to do. So when I got my, um, my degree and I entered the world, it was quite a shock to find that not many people need an 18th centuryist, let alone a specialist in poetry. What? We, we don't need that? That's shocking to me. So I um, started teaching at the University of Hartford, where I taught 
composition and introduction to literature, just like I do here. And I stayed there for four years and I found that I really love teaching freshmen and I love teaching general education English classes because I get to watch students evolve from a high school mentality to a real collegiate academic um, relationship to literature and to writing. I love to see that transformation over the course of the semester, especially when it's surprising. You know, students who are really struggling at the beginning of the semester to understand academia, and then by week 15, they've got it. That was a surprise to me. I didn't expect that to happen um, because it wasn't related to my specific field of training. But um, in year four, that's when COVID hit and my position was eliminated because it was a part-time position. I was teaching 3-3 a year, but it was eliminated. So I got to spend the two years of COVID at home watching my own kids do online learning in elementary and middle school and sort of live vicariously through them this awful experience that they had (laughs) and to see what worked for them and what didn't work for them. Um, And then when they returned to school, I was able to return to work. And um, luckily, Three Rivers was looking for um, a supplemental uh, instructor, and I filled those shoes. So I've been happily here since last fall um, teaching general education, which I find that I really love. Yeah, that's terrific. I think that one thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about, because people you know, when they find out that I have only a lowly master's degree, mm-hmm. they often will inquire if I want to pursue the PhD. And I want to talk about your experience doing that mm-hmm. as well. You know, part of me does really miss being a student and being in the classroom. And I feel like I could write some great papers now that I've been teaching how to write great papers for so long. But my understanding, and you can um, correct me if I'm wrong with this, but my understanding is that if we were at a four-year research university, you know, teaching would be a chunk of your responsibilities. Uh, But like you mentioned, you're also responsible to present at conferences and publish and research and that kind of thing. And I feel like, you know, this was my first, I was an adjunct for two years after graduate school before I managed to um, get a full-time spot here at Three Rivers. And I'm always, I've always been super grateful for it, but particularly because the emphasis is so much on teaching you know, I don't have a huge compulsion to research. Not that there's anything wrong with that, obviously. But for the type of person that I am, teaching is definitely the thing I'm most passionate about. And, um, you know, the, the pressure to publish and the pressure to do research and stuff is things that I'm happy to mostly not have to worry about. Uh, but you're, you're super into research and love of teaching aside, you must miss that to a certain degree and try to maintain it. I do. I do. Well, I don't like the the pressures of research, but I love the 18th century. And when I was in graduate school for my PhD, yeah, it was an R1 institution. And so all of the professors, their emphasis was on their research. So they had students like me teaching their sections for them. And this is something I tell my own kids as they're thinking about college choices is, you know, do you want to be taught by the professor or do you want to be taught by the teaching assistant instead? 
because it makes a difference. Do you want to have access directly to the professor during office hours, or do you want to have to schedule, say, weeks in advance to meet with a professor that you may not know well at all, you know, because they are so um, sought out that you have to schedule this, you know, three weeks in advance in order to see them. And they may not even know who you are because they only teach you intermittently. That is certainly um, what I experienced as a teaching assistant. And I found um, that I like teaching so much and I liked forming relationships with students so much, but I always assumed I would have to put that on the back burner because I assumed I'd be getting an 18th century job. So the fact that that hasn't happened has actually been very beneficial to me because it's allowed me to um, develop my teaching skills. And I do, I do love my field and it's why I continue to try to publish and research in my field, um, but I can do it because I'm part-time, because I only have the two classes to teach and I don't have responsibilities on campus. So I can spend my extra time doing research and scholarly pursuits. Um, But I also think that regardless of that, it makes me a better teacher because I can explain to my students um, the process of peer review from like a very personal perspective. I can tell them my own agonizing stories of defeat and misery trying to get something published. Um, And hopefully it can ease their burden a bit to know that it it is a really hard process. I haven't published a lot. Um, I'm certainly a slow writer, but I think it's because I have chosen to spend more time thinking about my teaching and my teaching methods than devote 100% of my time to scholarship. And I think that's why I actually wouldn't be good at a research institution, because I like to think more about teaching than I do the scholarship. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the same way. I think that love of teaching is what keeps a lot of us at the community college level. And I feel like you know, I've said in conversations, I feel like I can do the most good here. You know, I taught, I did a, a year as an adjunct, sorry for using that word, <laughs> uh, calling myself. Uh, I was an adjunct at Sacred Heart University, which is where I did my bachelor's degree, uh, where I taught, I think, a couple sections of their freshman literature class. And it was really beneficial. I mean, great to be back on my old campus, but also just to see the difference in the student population between this, you know, private Catholic four-year university and the diversity that we enjoy here at Three Rivers. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do, part of me does love the idea, the romanticism of pursuing the PhD, but I also feel like it's not essential for me to do what I want to do. And that's not, um, not to undermine your achievements, obviously, but it's just, um, you know, I feel good about being here. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. It, it is not for everybody. And honestly, if I had had, I think, better guidance um, in my past, I might not have chosen to go for it. But I loved um, being a student so much. It just made sense to me to just continue forward um, because I didn't realize there were other options out there at the time. Um, but uh, going back to what you're saying about um, the different student body populations, I do have to say that being um, an adjunct is sometimes beneficial if you have to 
work at more than one location because you get a glimpse of different student body populations. Um, and I have. I mean, I, I worked at University of Hartford, but I also taught at Stonehill College in Easton, Mass, and at Brandeis University, where I got my doctorate, and at University of Rhode Island. And all of those campuses have very different students. And so it has shaped my teaching methods and my pedagogy in many ways. So I, I, I guess that could be sort of a side benefit of trying to cobble together a career as an adjunct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned about relating to students in terms of peer review, because mm. I say it all the time, you know, peer review is one of the most difficult things that we need to do in this class. I really believe in it, and I think you do too. Uh, but I love that idea of saying, I mean, you think asking your classmate to find your thesis is stressful. You know, try competing to get your article that you've worked on for months published in this professional publication. I wanted to sort of tie that into, um, again, relating to students through your academic work, because my understanding is that, you know, my master's thesis, um, which was on Middle English lyric poetry, it was very cool, very useful to me on a daily basis, was basically the equivalent of writing a, a chapter of a book. You know, it's about 70, 75 pages, right? And from what I understand, doing a doctoral dissertation is basically writing a book. And I know you have you have written a book as well, which we I want to talk about. But was your dissertation the book or did that was that a stepping stone to the book? Or what is the dynamic there? Well, the dissertation is in many ways, like you describe multiple chapters of a master's thesis. Um, each one of my chapters focused on one particular author and one particular text that they had written, all under an umbrella thesis. Um, but what I was missing from that, that my book has, is a larger scope in terms of why these authors and texts are so important. Why did I choose these? rather than any of the others that had been published in the period. Um, and I was able, between writing my dissertation and publishing the book, to really solidify more carefully the larger conversation that my ideas were a part of, because I was very focused in the dissertation on just these texts and what these texts are doing, the, the close reading, rhetorical analysis kind of stuff that I love. But when you write the book, you have to step back from it and make it a little bit more general, a little more broader, because the publisher wants to sell your book. So they it has to appeal to a wide range of audiences. And so you sort of have to sell it in a larger way as well. So that too is helpful in my classroom when I'm trying to get my students to see that a, a thesis has to be part of a larger question or topic or conversation. Um, I know this because I didn't do it um, originally, and I had to do it to reach my goal in the end. So, Yeah, that's so cool. I spend a lot of time talking about really all we're doing in these English classes is learning how to participate in a conversation. So that's a great connection. I wanted to ask you, again, to make this relevant for the students that may or may not be listening. You know, writing an English paper is stressful, especially if you're not a writer, or even if you are a writer, because writing only gets more difficult, the better, quote unquote, that you get at it. Writing an English paper is stressful, but writing a book seems just like an insurmountable task. How does one write a book? And how do you feel like you 
use that to relate to your students in terms of how to deal with mentally tackling a big project that seems impossible. It does seem impossible sometimes. It really does. Yep. Especially when you have all of these other competing pressures on you, whether that be family or other work uh, obligations or, you know, your dogs, maybe. (laughs) Um, It can be really overwhelming. And I think that the key is to remember that it's okay if it's overwhelming. Um, For me, publishing the book, I didn't have to do it by a certain deadline um, because I'm not in a tenure track program. So I knew that I could breathe a little bit if I needed to. But what really got me through the process was knowing just how important it was to me. I had been working on these authors and these texts for years and years. It took me the, the main author of my book is Alexander Pope, who um, is an 18th century poet. And I was first introduced to his poetry as an undergraduate um, when I was a student at University of Hartford. I still remember the class. I still remember the moment when I was assigned his poem. And then all those years later, it took me um, uh, way too long <laughs> to uh, get a book published. But I... I always remembered where it started from, where my passion started from, and that my belief that I had something to say that was important enough that I had to complete the project, that I was offering a thought that should be shared that was important in some way. And so when my students are writing their research papers, I try to remind them that writing is purposeful and it's driven by our need to accomplish something, that we want something to happen with the conversation, whether it's change or new legislation or um, you know new movements, we want something to happen. And so um, remembering that action can occur because of our writing is really important. And it's, it's what drove me to keep going. Yeah, definitely. What I love about what you just said, though, is, first of all, it reminds me of what we said at the beginning about finding out what you care about. But also, I try to bring this into the classroom when we talk about um, vulnerabilities and procrastination and things and what prevents us from getting things done. And I try to remind myself that we often, procrastination is often the result of forgetting momentarily who you want to be and where you want to go, you know, because every moment, every step, right, gets you closer or farther away from where you want to be and who you want to be. And so in the moment, it's really easy to succumb to a pain in the butt English paper, I'd rather just look at TikTok. But, you know, you have to say, if I choose to just work on this for 20 minutes, it's going to get you a little bit closer to where you ultimately want to be. And so I think having that perspective is really important for students. Well, writing for me is also a way to combat isolation that can often occur as an adjunct. Um, I'm very much on the periphery of like 18th century studies because I don't engage with other scholars um, in the field unless I go to conferences voluntarily, right? Or unless I read their work, but they aren't walking around campus, right? Where I meet up with them and I'm not on campus enough to really forge um, great relationships with a lot of other instructors. So 
being an adjunct is very lonely, which everyone acknowledges, but it is, it's lonely. And so I think when I was writing my book, part of it was to combat that loneliness, to feel like I was adding to the conversation and leaving my mark and and expressing my voice in this great, huge database of scholarship and books and just uh, academic noise that's out there. But I felt like I was saying something and that was important to me. Yeah. I feel like academic life is does kind of have an inherent loneliness, especially for the part-time instructor who's traveling from campus to campus, which is why, uh, but even for, for full-timers, I feel like, you know, especially at this point in the semester, we're recording this midterm week and everything is just, the intensity is just relentless, it feels like. And that's why, you know, I've always enjoyed our conversations, just talking about how to teach, you know, doing classroom stuff in the English 1010 uh, classroom, because I think it's really easy for everybody as the semester goes on to just be head down, grinding it out. And it's nice to talk shop once in a while, which is why I wanted to have you on. Well, thank you. I love to talk shop anytime. Yes. <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit more about the 18th century in particular. I know you've, t- you've touched on a little bit with Alexander Pope. What is it about the 18th century? So I have to remind myself, this is 1700s, mm-hmm. right, which is super convenient, mm-hmm. right? But what is it about <laughs> that century uh, that speaks to you more so than other centuries? So when I say that I am an 18th centuryist, I specifically have dates that bookend <laughs> what I study and what I do. So I say that I am an 18th centuryist from roughly 1660 to like 1832, which is a very specific time period, but it corresponds with certain events that happened in Britain in the time. And um, I laugh because I never get to uh, talk about this at all. So thank Thank you for letting me talk about it. That's what I'm here for. (laughs) Um, Why do I love the 18th century? Well, it's the time of the Enlightenment, and it's a time of great change that happened across Britain that really prefaced everything that happened in the American Revolution. Um, So many new philosophies being developed, new inventions, new industries, such a great quantity of change. It's the century when the novel was born. The novel did not exist before this time period. And I love conveying that to my students in Introduction to Literature. You know, there was a time when there were no novels and it was poetry or drama. And the look on their faces is just unbelievably awesome. <laughs> um, the, the 18th century was worried and nervous about technology in the same way that we are. Um, The same problems about human rights and um, justice systems occurring as we see now. Um, It was really a a period of great upheaval and change while looking towards the past for inspiration. Um, And I think it really marks a change in the, the course of Western and European thought processes. And that's why I just, I've gravitated towards it so much. That's fascinating to hear about the recurring cultural or societal feelings about fear of technology or, you know, the nostalgia for the past. Do you feel like that, does that speak to a, we haven't made any progress or does it speak to just some sort of inherent universal human motifs that we're just always going to be struggling with? 
For me, the primary connection is a question about what is our relationship to the past? How do we understand it? I love this question and I I talk about it all the time whenever I can. My, my kids are sick of it. Um, how do we understand the past? You know, do we understand the past um, as dictated through the actions of specific heroic figures who are typically elite white men? Or do we understand the past um, as things that we can touch and hold, like artifacts, coins, um, sculpture, um, paintings? Um, what is that relationship between the past and the present moment and how it's going to impact our future? I think these are long-standing questions that the 18th century really started to delve into. It was the time period when they first started to write a history of Britain, which had never been attempted before. Um, and it was the time when America is starting to ask questions about themselves and their relationship to the past. Um, and it's questions we ask even today. In my book, I especially think about the role of commemoration, large-scale monuments, for instance. Um, you know, in the past decade, this has become a really contentious issue around the United States. How do we handle monuments to individuals that don't represent our beliefs? Um, do we keep them? Do we tear them down? Um, and that's a question of our relationship with the past and who we want to remember and how we want to remember them. So for me, nation building and national identity is all wrapped into that relationship that we have with time and the past and who and what we remember in our historical documents. Yeah, very cool. Uh, there's a, it just reminds me of a, a thread that I saw on Mastodon, which is like a nerd Twitter. Uh, but it was like a, a short history of a generation of wimps, you know, that's sort of a common refrain right mm -hmm. now, that we're raising a generation of wimps. The humor is that it's just a series of tweets with excerpted, you know, screenshotted passages of people using the phrase, we're raising a generation of wimps from 2023, and then 2008, and then 1994 and then 1967, and then 1892, and then 1778. You know, it's just, um, I don't know, there's just always a, again, I think of nostalgia in terms of that longing for the past where things seemed simpler or more idyllic or, you know, things were better back then. But I don't know. We're always trying to do our best. We are. And you can never pinpoint when that moment of that golden age really was, because every generation will say that it was in the past. Well, how far back do we go? You know, that's why um, in my literature classes, I love to teach the pastoral because the pastoral is such an idyllic mold, uh, mode, um, all about a golden age. But can there ever be a golden age? You know, where does it start? How do we identify it? Yeah, it's a recurring problem. And mm. it's, it's fascinating to think about. For sure. In recent years, I've been trying to read more of the great works. You and I have talked about this a little bit. And there is, you know, you mentioned the, the dawn of the novel in this period that you love. And there is something, there is like a mystique just around the phrase, you know, the novel or a novel. What do you think... I wasn't planning to ask this, but what do you think that is? What is it about a novel that for some of us, you know, feels like so mysterious or powerful or magical? 
Or maybe you don't feel that way about them. Oh, I I would not be a good English, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> I did not feel that way about books. Um, novels, uh, I think it's it's the depth of connection we feel to the characters, the the psychological and emotional backstories that they offer um, that other genres do not. Um, the, the level of detail and the way that their ex- expansive length can really allow the prose style to replicate the dilemmas that go on in the characters' lives. Um, it just They offer us these little miniature worlds that we can step into and be a part of, and then we step away, change somehow, taking something from that experience. You know, no matter how many times I read Pride and Prejudice, let's say, I always leave that world feeling something new or discovering something new that I hadn't seen before. I think that's a gift that novels offer us all the time. Yes, I completely connect with that. My, um, I'm a pretty big Harold Bloom fan, which is kind of funny because my American lit professor in college uh, met Harold Bloom, who's a, a late literary critic and uh, taught at Yale for many, many years until he died. But my American lit professor described him as a, a pompous blowhard, which I can see mm-hmm. how you would how would you would apply that to Professor Bloom. Mm-hmm. But I find him just fascinating as a person, even though you might not agree with everything that he says, but I love watching his, his appearances on Charlie Rose and stuff. And he really instilled in me something that I still think about, which is we read because we cannot know enough people which is just, I think about that all the time, and I try to impart it to the students all the time, that similar to going to college itself, you go or you read because it's impossible to get to know as many people as we would like to get to know. And so the value, I think, of the novel is, like you said, that opportunity to spend many pages with these characters and their world and their challenges and struggles. And even though writing, reading, and writing are solitary acts, it does help us to feel less alone, I think, because we see ourselves in the characters that we read. Absolutely. I mean, we get to experience situations that maybe practically we would never experience in our lives, um, giving us insights that we never would have had. Um, And it definitely forms those connections. I tell my students all the time that um, reading and writing does not occur in isolation. Even if we are alone when we're doing it, we're connecting with ideas and with people and with scenarios all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. You mentioned Pride and Prejudice, and I know you and I, again, have talked about this off air a little bit. Maybe this is two questions in one. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Jane Austen because Jane Austen is one of the uh, authors still on my list of things to get to before I die. Um, (laughs) But I was going to ask, and I don't know if Austen is your answer to this, but I was going to say perhaps first, if somebody in 2023 who is not an academic and wanted to get into the 18th century, because Sarah Beth says it's great, (laughs) what is there a way in that you might recommend? I think Austin is the way in. Um, even if it's not through her novels, even if it's one of the many adaptations um, in film of her of her books, 
she just gives an incredible sense of what daily life was like um, for a particular class of individuals. But you get a sense of the routines and the restrictions and whatever limited opportunities that there might have been for both men and women in the period. Um, I think she is funny and she is uh, sarcastic. Um, She's very critical, but she offers amazing insight into um, human psychology, even before psychology was an official discipline. Um, Questions about um, mental health and emotional health all come from Austin and her interactions among her characters. Um, She does not provide a lot of description in detail in in her prose. And so it's driven by conversation and it's fantastic. Um, to see the um, personalities of the characters come through these conversations. Um, So I would recommend her and Pride and Prejudice specifically as a first um, encounter with the 18th century. Of course, she's at the very end of the 18th century, but she is still, in terms of like fashion and um, manners, still very much a part of the period. Very cool. Speaking of her prose, this might be worth mentioning because, you know, you think 18th century, which means the Mm 1700s-ish, is the prose, I know what Middle English is like, and I know that Old English is basically a foreign language, right? I know that Middle English is a little bit more readable, but even, you know, Elizabethan English for students feels like a foreign language sometimes. How would you describe, like, oh, that sounds nice, but I'm not going to be able to understand it. I think in terms of 18th century novels, it's much more accessible. I think the poetry can be more difficult. Um, but in terms of the prose, it's it's definitely not a struggle um, to understand it. What can be a struggle, though, is the fact that writers in the period didn't know what the novel was. They didn't realize they were starting a new genre because oh, it had never existed before. So they're writing these new forms of writing without knowing that they're starting a whole new branch of literature. So some of their creations are really strange to see. Some of the earliest novels do weird things that we wouldn't even consider part of novels. You know, um, they don't have chapter breaks, for instance, or they'll include weird font styles and choices. um, Or they might have chapter breaks, but each chapter will be prefaced by this huge um, overview of what you're going to encounter in the chapter. It's very strange what they do. Um, One novel, uh, Tristram Shandy, for instance, um, an entire page of that novel is just black. It's just a black page because it's supposed to represent his comments on time at the moment. Um, so they do very strange things, which are fascinating. But that could be the area where you feel a little uncomfortable because you're like, that's not a novel. Where are my chapters? You know, where are my characters? They may not have the things we assume a novel to have because they were just starting out. Yeah, that's fascinating. The idea that you know, there was, I mean, there's still room to innovate, but you think of like, oh, a novel, that's just a book that tells a long story instead of a short story. But yeah, there is so much room for experimentation. And it reminds me what you were talking about, about the the overview of what you're going to encounter. You know, Cormac McCarthy does that in Blood Meridian. Mm-hmm. You know, the beginning of each chapter has just a series of phrases about what's going to happen, which is just an interesting, interesting choice to think about, you know, why, why was that choice made? But yeah, I mean, that's, there is room for 
innovation and it's it's not just uh you know chapters one through 50 or something yeah i mean by the time you get to austin it pretty much looks like the novel we have today but if we understand that the novel didn't just appear this way we can understand why modern authors um might play around with the form and might keep playing around with the form um, because it's it's um, it's a form that historically has been innovative. And so why stop now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the few years that I've been trying to read more of the great books, little by little, never going to get to all of them, but I started it with Moby Dick, which I think is 19th century. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been reading some Dostoevsky this year. And it it is really experimental. You know, it's not just plot driven sort of stuff. You know, you got, here's a whole chapter about different types of whales and stuff. You know, it's not just, you know, I got on a boat and things like that. Um, There's another thing I wanted to say about that bloom reminded me of, but I can't, I can't think of it. That happens all the time when I'm teaching, you know, all of a sudden I'll just go out the window and then I have to regroup and, and pretend like I'm just, you know, adjusting my thoughts to still appear that I'm on top of things. Right. And as a sidebar, (laughs) I mean, just doing these couple of episodes so far here in season one of the flowdown, the guest, you guys will say something that, oh, I want to respond to that. I want to respond to that. And then you keep talking and, oh, I want to respond to that. (laughs) And it's like, you know, trying to make the conversation sound organic when there's so many things to talk about because of the complexity of what we're all doing here on the planet. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let's see. So your do you feel like you've explained the nature of your book enough? Yeah. Yeah. You feel good about that? Yeah. But if you want me to, you know, keep going for another few hours, (laughs) I definitely will. (laughs) The book is called it's called Exemplary England, Historical Inquiry, and Literary Recompense in Pope, Gray, and Richardson, who are my three main authors that I talk about. Yes. None, of whom, none of whom are Austin. No, they are not, because it is a book about poetry, primarily. Although um, I talk about Samuel Richardson's novel, Clarissa, which is a novel, um, but I did not talk about Austin this time. That is my dream for a second book, is to write about Austin. So if I have the stamina and the will to do so and access to resources and databases, then maybe I will. Excellent. Very good. Well, we started with databases. Mm. We could come full circle and conclude (laughs) with databases. Nicely done. Thank you. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Before we go, uh, I have to ask you if you have a recommendation for the listeners. This is a recurring segment uh, on the Flowdown, which is where the guest brings something that you feel like we should all check out, whether it's a piece of media or a way of thinking or anything in between. So, Sarah Beth, Dr. Grant herself. Do you have a recommendation for the listeners? Well, besides going out and reading my book, of course. Obviously. (laughs) Um, So my recommendation is because it is October and because I'm wearing my pumpkin necklace right now, my recommendation is that everybody should read The Legend of Sleepy Hollow because it is an incredible short story and better than any of the TV or film adaptations that are out there. I absolutely love the short story. And if I was teaching Intro to Lit right now, I would assign it at this time of year because it is fantastic. That is a great recommendation. <laughs> I didn't even recognize that as a short story when you first mentioned it. Who wrote Legend of Sleepy Hollow? Uh, uh, Irving. 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 Okay, yep, that yep. sounds familiar. Yep. 
But what I love about it is the fact that um, he does such an amazing job of his writing style reflecting the sleepiness of Sleepy Hollow. When you read the sentences, you start to fall asleep, just like the inhabitants of Sleepy Hollow. And it's just terrific the way he does that. And who can deny the wonder of the headless horseman charging at you with a pumpkin head? Yes. It's incredible. I don't like scary things, but yeah, I think I'll I. read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that idea, though, about form reflecting mm-hmm. content. That's yeah. always one of my favorite things when that happens. Yeah, absolutely. We are, are um, reading Dracula right now via uh, an email newsletter called Daily Dracula, which, I don't know if you know this, the, uh, the novel Dracula is comprises just a series of journal entries and news articles, each of which is dated because it's, you know, this character's diary entry and then this character's news article or whatever. And so what this newsletter does is it sends you out uh, the day's quote-unquote chapters in real time. You know, so if in the novel today is, can't disclose today's date, but if, (laughs) uh, if, there was something in the novel where a character wrote in their diary on this date, then you get an email with just that chapter, for lack of a better term. So it's a really accessible way because if you keep up with your email, as we're all perfect at doing, you know, you get a little bit of Dracula every day. You That's know. fantastic. Yeah, it's really yeah. good. I think he does it every year. He just made it into a book. Uh, his first name is Matt, the guy that, that does it. I forget his last name. But yeah, just Google Daily Dracula. And um, you can get it in hardcover form. Or I think you can sign up next year. Because I think it runs... I forget when it started. But I know that it, the novel ends in November. So we're not sure how many more Daily Draculas mm-hmm. we're going to have to read. But that's my Halloween Halloween uh, reading recommendation. That's awesome. We should all have like a uh, annual habit related to literature for Halloween. Because yeah. there's so many good choices. Right. So many good yeah. choices. Too many things to read. And it's yeah. so, um, my wife and I are reading it. You know, she's not an English professor, but we're having a blast. Like, what's going to happen? Like, mm-hmm. what what's going to happen to these people, our friends that we have been reading about for months now? I know, that have entered your email inbox. Yes. You know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, thank you so much, Sarah Beth, for uh, coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm really grateful that you took the time to uh, to be here. Well, thank you. It was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, And thank you to everybody for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please tell someone else to listen to it. And we will see you next time. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to say maybe move the mic just slightly toward me a little bit yeah seems a little bit off center you sound great in the mic in the headphones Mm -hmm. i'm just paranoid Mm -hmm. that's okay we all are (laughs) now i have to leave that in